Welcome to Talking Tessel, the official podcast of Concordia's Tessel Resource Center. In this podcast, we interview various members of Concordia's Tessel community, from faculty members and alumni to students in the middle of their bachelors. And our aim is to bring our community together and learn from each other's insight and diverse experiences in the Tessel field. So let's talk Tessel. In 1979, the English rock band Pink Floyd released their 11th studio album, The Wall. The Wall was a huge commercial success, topping the US charts for 15 straight weeks and reaching number three in the UK. Even today, it is considered to be one of the greatest works in music history and one of Pink Floyd's most iconic, well-known albums. Many of the album's themes, such as isolation, conformity, unresolved trauma, resonate with listeners today. The Wall had three singles, but only one of them reached the number one spot on the Billboard charts in the US and the UK. That song was Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2. You've probably heard it before. The chorus goes like this. song, Pink Floyd's bassist and frequent songwriter Roger Waters describes the experience of his rigid and abusive schooling. He leads a chorus of school children in a rousing protest against their teachers and school systems, naming what he believes to be the tactics used in classes, dark sarcasm, thought control. The music video for the song, which is taken from the movie The Wall, further illustrates Waters' experience of school. Faceless, waxen students, sitting at desks, moving along a conveyor belt in a grim factory, only eventually to fall into a meat grinder and be churned into sausages. The music video ends with school children actualizing their frustration and anger by taking off their waxen masks, showing their individual faces, and euphorically and chaotically trashing their school. However, in the final scene, we realize that the protest was actually just the dream of the young protagonist, Pink. In reality, he is still at school, listening to the droning of his schoolmaster. Nika is the area of a rectangle whose length is one for one and whose width is one shape. I will be honest. The message of Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, that school is a place of rigid, monotonous mind control, resonated with me tremendously, especially as a teenager. It was an image of the school as an institution and a relationship between the teacher and the student that I think is deeply entrenched in our cultural understanding of education. This is the image of the student as an empty vessel, a block of clay, there to be molded by the teacher who are the possessors of correct knowledge and ways of thinking. And if a student resists that shaping, they are punished severely. 
In this image, the school is a prison that pushes conformity and obedience. Although our school systems are very different from the strict boarding schools of post-war England that is portrayed in Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, I believe this model of education, this model that the teacher is the almighty knower and that the student is the passive recipient of this knowledge, is extremely pervasive to this day. Students have this view of education, and many educators do as well, possibly even unconsciously. However, different models of education have existed throughout history, and models that present a very different dynamic between the teacher and the student. One such philosophy emerged roughly a decade prior to the release of Pink Floyd's The Wall, which in my view represents the complete antithesis of Roger Waters' experience of the education system. In 1968, the Brazilian educator and philosopher Paulo Freire released his book Pedagogy of the Oppressed. In this book, Freire criticizes the existing traditional model of education, which is kind of like the one described in Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, and proposes a completely different relationship between the teacher, the student, and the role of the school system in society. So according to Freire, the teacher-student relationship is not strictly a hierarchical one with the student acting as a blank slate and the teacher as the all-knower, otherwise known as the banking model of education, according to Freire. Rather, the teacher-student relationship is a collaborative one of mutual respect. In this view, the student is not passive, but an active agent in the classroom, contributing to the collective knowledge of the class, a knowledge that is created by both the student and the teacher. It is the job of the teacher not to tell the student how the world is, but to bring up and problematize issues in society that the class can discuss together. It is a view of education that promotes critical thinking, hence its name, critical pedagogy. Now this type of pedagogy seems well and good. We want members of society who will think critically and question deeply entrenched ways of thinking and doing, right? But what does this type of pedagogy actually look like in the classroom? How can we as teachers promote this type of learning? What does it mean to be a critical pedagogy? This is the first episode in a three-part series about critical pedagogy. In this series, we are trying to challenge enduring models of education through conversations with researchers, teachers, and students. Here, we will feature interviews with three guests, presenting three angles on critical pedagogy. First, we will discuss the philosophy in general. In our second episode, we will discuss how it can be practiced while teaching TESOL abroad. And in the last interview, we will delve into how it can be implemented at home here in Quebec. In this first episode, I'm joined by Dr. Nassim Naruzi, who lectured in Concordia's Department of Education about the philosophy of education. Her research focuses on ethics of resistance in today's colonial context and specifically examines the relationship between the phenomena of time, colonization, and resistance against it. In her public engagements, she mostly focuses on ethics of resistance in today's colonial context. In this interview, we spoke about what it means to be a critical pedagogue and how to bring critical theory into the classroom.
Hi, Nassim. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Savan. All right, let's get right into this conversation. This is a conversation we need to have. So first, big question, what does being a teacher who practices critical pedagogy mean to you? It means being okay with vulnerability. That's the main thing for me. Knowing that what you know can be wrong and knowing that what you have known since your childhood can also be flawed or even completely misguided. There is a lot of being okay with discomfort that you need to embrace if you want to be a critical pedagogue or a critical theory embracing teacher. I will not say a critical teacher because so, so, so many people mistake critical thinking with critical theory. And critical theory thinking has become such a buzzword that my students usually get pretty surprised when they realize that critical theory is different. And it's about like a hopeful pessimism about things that we know and the way we do things or the way we teach things. So, you know, I try to stick to the term critical pedagogue, even though it sounds like super smart nerdy, but it should be different from, we should differentiate it from critical thinking. I, I so I, so being vulnerable. I love the beautiful simplicity mm-hmm. of this. Like this is something that mm-hmm. I think people can understand. Do you do you think a lot of teachers have difficulty with this, or people in general have difficulty with this vulnerability and perhaps this humility? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We um, tend to have a very specific take on knowing, which is we should be like our knowledge should help us dominate. Um, our environment, right? Which is super cool. That's why we're sitting in houses and we have air conditioners and etc. But um, it becomes to the point that sometimes, most of the time, we often, um, you know, oversee the red lines and we try to dominate others as well, or we try to show our way of knowing as being the, the superior one. And this way, you know, we can cause a lot of harm. So one of the things about Critical For me, again, my version of critical theory is being okay with the fact that what you know can be wrong. Right. That makes me think of uh, this one quote that I read in a book called Braiding Sweetgrass uh, by Robin Wall Kimmerer, mm-hmm. where she talks about, because there, you, you, there you talked about knowing as dominating, right? And I think that's one particular way to understand knowing. But I remember she brought up, um, well... What she said is, what 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 good is knowing without mm-hmm. caring? You know, she she Absolutely. created this link between knowing and caring, and there's something that I feel like dominating is not really caring in this full For sense. Sure. Yeah, so yeah, there it's. Uh, I I I'm very sad that these words like caring have sort of be- become have, have have been carrying this connotation of spirituality, which in our minds in the Western Uh, within the minds that are habituated with a Western kind of thinking, it's kind of like you're relegating it from like real thinking to like spirituality. It's either, it's not thinking, whatever it is, it's something else. Right. So um, that's why I focus on the word harm because you're right. And the author is absolutely right. You can, you can harm people with your knowing without you knowing. Right. So that's, you know, she's formulating it through caring. I try to step, I try to sort of, speak to the audience that might say, ah, you know, this is different from thinking. And I'm like, sure. Yeah. So let's think about what causes harm in our thinking for <laughs> to, uh, towards others. So. I think that's brilliant. Okay. We're, we're going to get back to that more in a bit, but, but so just going back to the, the, the more practical aspects in the classroom. So 
for a teacher mm-hmm. who practices critical pedagogy, what what does that actually look like in the classroom? Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm gonna. It, it should make them uncomfortable. Let me let me put it this way. Um, I I think it's very important to see that critical pedagogy is not an easy task. Um, it has made my students also pretty uncomfortable, but it depends also on how you teach critical theory. <clears throat> and I know that what you mean is for the student, uh, for the new teachers and the novice teachers in the classroom. But let me tell you a little bit about my experience, and then I'm pretty sure it's going to be the same way in other classes. Um, if you, it depends on how you teach it and how you look at it, critical theory can result in students thinking that we're criticizing just for the sake of sounding smart up to date or just for the sake of showing that you're cool. This is a this is a you know vibe that sometimes people get in our classes. But we're not teaching and criticizing the current state of things for any of these. Although let's face it, many do get the impression, including myself, but we're looking at the current state of things with a pessimistic eye, in the hopes, in the hopes that through the through our pessimism, we do not continue giving the wrong or harmful knowledge to the next generation. That is why it's a hopeful pessimism and it has a special purpose to be mindful of wrong ways of knowing so we do not continue harming certain people or the planet. Come, you know, can see it this way. Yeah, it's pretty cool and smart of us to be this okay with criticizing ourselves. So yeah, it makes us uncomfortable, but then it's also the key to being better humans. Now, criticizing is not for the sake of criticizing or singling out people or cultures. It is making sure that we're questioning enough, probing enough, poking or knowing enough, so we know it would be the best and least harmful knowing. Um, don't forget, Savan, homosexuality was known to be as a disease, right? And, you know, you keep th- I, I want everyone to keep thinking about this as, you know, you're thinking about critical theory. If we didn't poke our knowing enough, our knowledge could continue to harm people. It is still harming people, right? What is harming them? What, what is harming people at the margins of society is the fact that we think what we know is right. That's how I formulate it. So critical pedagogues, as hopeful pessimists of society's knowledge and the way it runs things, are super cool people. So this is how it manifests itself in the classroom. It should make yes. you uncomfortable. Right, and, you right. Know, we're going to talk about that later. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then what do you think... How, how do you think it changes the the way a teacher views themselves? Because, and I, and I ask this question because I think that mm-hmm. um, it, it's pretty entrenched, I think, in the minds of a lot of teachers. And this is kind of the way teaching has been for so long that the teacher is the knower, the teacher possesses the knowledge and mm-hmm. then just, mm-hmm. you know, hands it to the students mm-hmm. um, who are these mm-hmm. blank slates. So do you think a teacher who really adopts um, a, a critical pedagogical practice, we can say, um, does it change the way they view their role as a teacher? Yes. Um, the short answer is yes. But the long answer is I, I'm, I, I think that we need to differentiate between teachers um teacher as this sort of like watered down version of the facilitator that we see in like corporate language that the teacher has like they sort of proceed into the background not giving any kind of knowledge just sort of asking people to all right do the discussion here do the discussion there I'm not a big fan of that I think you need to take responsibility for what you know 
um, this way. And then you you need to you need to know that what you're giving people is as correct as it can be, be it in the context of grammar or in the context of anything else, right? Or you know, in the context of looking at different sectors of the society. So um, it, it is about it. It's not about dominating the class with your knowledge. It's about making sure that you are responsible and you can res- you you can you're responsible enough for what you know. Um, but again, I want to differentiate between a kind of watered down version of facilitator. One of my colleagues and I forgot her name. He gave up. She she gave a very interesting uh, presentation um, at the American Philosophical Association, and she said instead of dif- facilitators, we should call teachers difficultators. Right? They should make the discussions more difficult. Right? So that's why I want to. Yeah, I want to differentiate between these two to say because I feel like Frere's ideas, and again, I'm not an expert in Frere, in Frere but um, his ideas have been sort of co-opted by. Um, you know, sort of like, yeah, no banking model. So let the students be the king. No, I don't, I don't like that either. I think that I, I have a responsibility to make sure what I, what I teach the students is as filtered enough, as ethically filtered enough as possible. Right. Right. So it's, it's, it's understanding that you have this responsibility. You're not just a facilitator. Mm -hmm. You're not just someone handing material or whatever and hoping exactly. you know exactly but it's truly understanding that you 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 have agency and you have responsibility as a teacher absolutely through your knowledge through your knowledge and I always that's why I always tell my students and, and Tessel especially I'm like know your stuff know why this is the way it is know how to explain this because that will give you a chance to say this this portion of it I know now I can focus on the rest of the dynamics of the class on who is being silenced who's not being silenced I can sort of focus on cultural aspects of this and that but if you don't know the portion that you're teaching the, the core portion I, I'm not a big fan of sort of resorting to Freire on these ideas, sort of like, oh, you know, I don't want to focus on this because I don't want to use the banking model. Nope. You know, you need to tell them what this is and then take responsibility for it. And then so now so that's we're talking about the teacher, but now for the students. So let's, let's think about the students who are in a class with a teacher who is is a critical pedagogue, you know, and who, cracti- mm-hmm. who practices critical pedagogy. What what does that do for the students? What kind of of an impact does that have on the students? What do you think? It makes them uncomfortable <laughs> when we're talking about critical theory. List one of my, again, learning is you know messy, that's such liberation. real talk. I, yeah, a, I just, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Me, I, I, I'm not talk. A, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm not a big fan of sugarcoating stuff. It's like yeah. very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Nope, it's not rewarding. Rewarding. <laughs> it can come with yeah. risks and everything. And you know, mm-hmm. one of the questions that you had was like, how can teachers teaching uh, um, at all levels implement critical pedagogy practices into their teaching? And I said, how by being okay with vulnerability again, by being okay with examining your thoughts. It's okay if someone or some theory or some theorist disrupts your cozy way of knowing of the world always ask when i'm teaching this whose ways of the world is being reinforced and whose ways are being more silenced that's so right (laughs) and i'm just like oh my god and so but but back to what you're saying there about um about it being uncomfortable 
for the students. Mm-hmm. I love that you brought this up because I think just in other conversations I've had with, you know, my like colleagues and peers and whatnot, I think there's this idea when they think about like, oh, okay, there's a teacher who practices critical pedagogy. It's like the, when they think about the students, the reaction is like this, mm-hmm. woo, <laughs> you know, this kind nope. of free for, free nope. for all. And, and everyone's like, I'm going to speak crossing their hands. Yeah. No, it's a lot of crossing their hands. It's a lot of like spastic reactions. It's a lot of like, you know, folding their legs. Like, what is she talking? You know, you you are you are threatening my way of existence, right? When you talk about, I always talk to my um, Italian students because I always say, you know, I'm an honorary Italian. I've been among, I've been living amongst Italians for a long time, and let me tell you, these are the problems. I'm like, I'm not saying this to make you uncomfortable. Again, as we were talking before, I'm very harsh on my own community. So, you know. I'm like, listen, <laughs> even when I'm teaching, when I think we're, I was teaching critical theory one time, and then one of my students said, so th- does this mean that everything we know could, can be wrong? And I said, listen, if you ask me about our cultures and the ways that we, when we view others, they can be harmful, my, and I say, don't say this outside of the class, but keep the recipes, ditch the rest. <laughs> I was like, keep the recipes of the foods of the cultures, dish the rest, because sometimes, you know, it's not just um, white people who are, you know, condescending and racist towards others. It, this, we're humans. These are human traits. So we need to be mindful of them in the larger context. So, yes, it means a lot of discomfort at the beginning, but also um, there is a, pl- there is a, there is a, um, a pleasure in dissecting stuff that if you know your stuff well, if the students know that they can rely on you, on your knowledge, then they're actually pretty okay with you disrupting their knowledge as well. That's why I say always know the core stuff that you're teaching and then start disrupting harmful ways of knowing, right? You say, this is it. I know my stuff. This is how you pronounce stuff in Australian accent, in the Australian accent, in the British accent. But now let me tell you, it's okay to have, it's beautiful to have accents. Um, it's, it's, you know, you don't have to like imitate the white person to speak English perfectly, right? So this is how, but first you should tell them that, you know, <laughs> this is my recipe for it, right? And then you're like, now I want to tell you, maybe this way can be harmful. Maybe it's not examined enough. Maybe you don't know that in secret you really want to become the white person by using slangs and street talks and saying, I wanna, instead of I want to, right? So these are all the little nitty gritty stuff. Do you think it comes in phases? Like, do you think first for the students, still talking about the students here, do you think first there's this phase of discomfort? Like what? You're, you're, you're basically saying that I need to question what I know, mm-hmm. <laughs> what I think to be true. Like, do you think that's a phase? And yeah. then after that phase, do you think there comes a certain kind of, I don't know, empowerment? No, or do you, I don't think it's a phase. Think? I think, um, I think it's, it's not a phase. Um, I think it's a um, virtue that you should carry with yourself all the time. The sort of notion of being uncomfortable is okay, right? Being disrupted is in and of itself pleasant because it will teach you to be a better human because it will make you a it, it will make your literacy deeper right so I don't see it as a phase to overcome and then let's go to the next phase which is like dominating now I want no I think it's this constant but one of my favorite quotes is from Maxine Green a very um prominent philosopher of education says wide awakeness this constant wide awakeness towards the world and towards the way that we're 
getting to know the world and spreading our knowledge, right? So um, the discomfort of being a novice teacher, dealing with it, yes, that's that's a phase, but always carry this discomfort. Um, it's a precious thing. And vulnerability is a precious thing. We shouldn't get rid of it, right? Right. I think that's that's beautiful and difficult, but there's beauty in the difficulty. I know. <laughs> critical, that's it. That's, see, we're going back to the first point. Critical yes. theory and being a critical pedagogue is a difficult thing to do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not just mm-hmm. pessimism. It's just not sounding smart. It's not alienating alienating people from like, oh, you're so ignorant. You don't know about this. No, mm-hmm. it's actually, mm-hmm. it is like a surgery of knowledge as opposed to, you know, just sort of, hey, a lot of critical pedagogues are, use the banking model, right? They're kind of like, oh, you're, you don't know the world. You don't know capitalism is ruining. It. Yeah, show me how it is doing that, right? Yeah, so so let's let's talk about that, the banking model, right? Because- just to reiterate, right, the banking model is this idea mm-hmm. that the teacher is the knower, as we kind of brought up before, the teacher is the knower, and mm-hmm. the students are these blank slates, and the teacher has the the knowledge and transfers it to the students who are like these these, these open vessels to receive the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What, what do you think about this? Because, okay, so you just, so you just said, right, that um, some teachers who practice critical pedagogy will will adopt this there are two reactions that i get in in classes where i have a critical take on concepts that we hold dear to ourselves and in classes that i'm i'm teaching philosophy and a philosophy of education and i it there's always that sense of um teachers feeling i'm an outsider in this i'm not critical enough I'm not pessimistic enough, or I am not well-read enough in philosophy classes, right? Because, and I think that comes from this legacy of the banking model in education, where um, teachers kind of say, all right, um, see, and this is the problem I have with it, which is, again, it, it gets spilled into critical theory classes where I am the knower. I know how capitalism has ruined our lives. And now you have to listen to me. And then when people are like, yeah, but, you know, my dad is making a living off of this. They're like, oh, this is so bad. Right. So that's that's how I see the banking model, unfortunately, manifesting itself in classes that are all like trying to be critical of the current state of things and current way education is. So that's why I say you need to have this wide awakeness. Right. This banking model. It's not just the alternative for banking model is not, all right, as you said, switch to handouts. Let's give handouts. Let's have discussions. No, this constant reflection about you and you, how you are basically copying and replicating the same dynamics in the class. Which is such, which is such work, you know, I mean, like that's work for the mm-hmm. students, that's work, that's work for the teacher, you know, because I, when I think of the banking model, like what comes to mind is, is, is just this kind of passivity all around, you know, mm-hmm. it's like this, mm-hmm. just this passive kind of giving the information, this passive accepting the information. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, we can talk for hours about this. I, um, <laughs> we can. Because I think I, I think I think a, a teacher um, that knows her subject very well um, cannot cannot go through a banking model. Banking model is a very rigid way as well. It's kind of like I think so. Say this, then ask this, and then go ahead. You if you know your stuff well, 
you you do want to sort of open it and sort of complicate things. Um, again, in the classes, I look I look at the two hours of the class as a surgery of some sort, and then teaching the surgery. Let's look at this. Let's look at that. Let's look at this. So, despite my despite my usual reactions to like trendy trendy words. Problem-based learning, something that is sort of very interesting as opposed to banking. And, but then for that, the teacher needs to have thought a lot about the problem. They need to think in advance, right? They need to they need to imagine their class prior to going to the class, not only in a lesson plan way, but sort of like, this is where, what I want to get out of my students by the end. This is the discomfort I want to get out of them. And I always tell my students, I say, we're going to be uncomfortable today. We're going to be, you know, you're, you, you, you might feel, or that's it. And I always say, um, especially, I, I teach a class called, um, I, I, I taught a class, a graduate class called Philosophy of Education Born of Struggle in, um, um, in Concordia's Department of Education. And I always say, you know what, sometimes when we're questioning stuff, you see the ground underneath you shaking. Instead of trying to find another ground, just grow wings. Look up and they say, oh, that can be wrong too. That can be wrong too, right? So by changing the attitude, which is very important, but it also has to, how, your, your take on knowledge has to change. It's not something to help you dominate Yes, it, it's mm-hmm. something to mm-hmm. help you. In, it helps empower you, but then at the same time, you're mindful that it won't harm others, right? So, again, right. I, I'm not that type of person. Who says, oh, knowledge is bad. Let's just discuss. And I'm, I'm not going to give. I'm not going to correct your opinions because everybody matters. No, I will correct your opinions. I will say that part can be wrong because mm-hmm. of this. But that only mm-hmm. happens if you know your stuff very well. But I also want to mention something. It can, it can sound very daunting. But it is like an investment. Once you sort of get used to this type of teaching, after two years, three years, four years, it becomes so ingrained in you that you become the sort of like architect of moments in the class where you sort of like, all right, today I want to teach them this. I'm going to use this text to make them, you know, kind of feel this way. And then we're going to have these questions and etc. So we're constantly, you know, dwelling between dominating the class, wanting this reaction, but then you know at least you're doing it in an ethical way. You know, you're you are heart, you are mindful of that. One one thing I'm noticing is the way you're describing this class. And to be honest, I've never thought of um, the classroom paradigm in this way, but as mm-hmm. Hmm, how to say this, but almost just like not based in emotions, but that that emotions and the the emotions mm-hmm. of the students are such a thing to to consider and Absolutely. to build around. Absolutely. You know, I, I've never I'll, I've my, never yeah. thought of it that way. I remember when I teach um, sometimes about should teachers teach should decolonize. One of my students came to me and said, "You know what? I always get riled up when I think about these things, and I say emotions and philosophy, emotions and thinking. That's that's the most powerful mix." embrace it it's beautiful you don't want that sort of distant isolated that person said that seven centuries ago um what do you think about it and then you're like oh my god what do i think about it i just want to go and watch netflix binge watch a spy series on netflix i don't care about what this guy thought it's kind of actually bringing the emotions in into the mixture of thinking for the sake of it being ethical not just for the sake of you know hollywood uh versions of stuff no you want it to be ethical so when you have that you don't you don't want to alienate students you want to bring them into this surgery with you it's like come look at the way i'm looking at my own knowledge look at how i was wrong in these ways and join me right this is how a critical pedagogue is instead of 
oh, I know these things and you don't know them, therefore you're ignorant. It's kind of like, look at how I knew stuff and how wrong they were, right? Yeah, and 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 this comes back beautifully, I find, to that, that quote before about knowing, like, what good is knowing without caring, you know, and, and caring mm-hmm. involves emotionality, <laughs> right? And, and so uh, I think absolutely. it ties together beautifully. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay, so I think I wanted to ask you, of course, about um, how teachers, you know, at, at all levels can implement critical pedagogy into their teaching. But I mean, I, I think we, we really have covered that. We talked about that before, just yeah. about, you know, it's this vulnerability, right? It's this, mm-hmm. it's this vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Do, do you find, I mean, in a very practical sense, though, like, let's like, can you do this, mm-hmm. say, for with like, grade, you know, first graders? Let's say very, very young Absolutely. students who are teaching them the, English. The younger, the younger they are, the more mm-hmm. comfortable they are with philosophizing about stuff because mm-hmm. they have they have been exposed to fewer answers, so they have more questions. Right. We 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 tend to lose our sense of philosophical acumen as we grow. Uh, I I I think this is the case. Instead of instead of like I, I think it the. Are, you know, again, this the modern way of knowing is kind of like, all right, we're this blank slate. We're going to learn answers and questions. And, and as we grow and we become more sophisticated, then we question the world. But I think, you know, we lose our sense of questioning as we grow. So, um, I mean, there are some interesting stuff about philosophy for children. Um, do look them up, uh, especially there is a, um, it's a program at some of the border cities in um, the U.S. where they actually mm-hmm. teach storytelling with uh, philosophical questions. And Sivan, you'd be surprised about the questions mm-hmm. that students ask about, like the idea of authority and power by discussing mm-hmm. elephants and, you know, ants. And you're like, oh, my God, the sense you get is I, I have lost it. You know, yeah. education has actually has been a catalyst in me losing my philosophical mm-hmm. acumen instead of reinforcing it right so mm-hmm. no there is no time to be to start um like there is i don't think there's an age limit i think the sooner you start the better the better you're gonna have a better society because you're gonna have questioners and inquirers instead of people who are uh, you know and always have answers i always say this to my students i say you know, how many of you have racist uncles? And then I also raise my hand and everybody else raises their hand. And I say, you tell me, <laughs> which you, do they have more answers or questions? And then they all say, well, they have answers. Like, let me tell you how the world works, <laughs> right? So that's how you should embrace it in the class by being okay with questions. Mm-hmm. And what I'm getting also is that there's, because um, one thing I find that you, you, you lose in so many domains of life, like not just, you know, in the classroom as you get older, it's just kind of, yeah, this playfulness too, like this openness is not, it, there's mm-hmm. something playful about that as well, you know, and something very experimental. And I think that's something that also can. It's being, com- kinda... it's being comfortable with vulnerability. It's being comfortable with being disrupted every, every minute, um, you know, and unpredictability, right. Unpredict- yeah. And, you know, yeah, answers, answers, by the way, I'm not, I, I am a big fan of answers, but only like again, I'm 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 plagiarizing from a very very cool um, cartoon that I. It's like a a day in a park. If you search online, it's about questions and answers. You it's again um it's not sort of like drop the answers. Let's just have comments. No, let's have the answers, but then let's exchange them with more questions. Right as we as we grow, 
right? So it's very important to sort of say, all right, now we're going to complicate the question, the answer again. And then you'll see after like my students, after 10 sessions in a 13 week class, after 10 weeks, they start asking questions that I always tell them, like, I'm freaking envious of you right now because <laughs> like, this is such a good question. I kind of want to steal it. And I, and I have, like, I, I, I have a very good student uh, from, uh, Ganawage and his name is Taran Hionande Barnes and uh, Barnes and I always um, I take I always use his question because it's such a discomforting question and I say I will steal this and I will show it to other people but you know that's mm-hmm. a different story mm-hmm. we're going to talk about that later. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you that um, it's based off of my experience it's based off of you know the experiences of peers colleagues etc um, other mm-hmm. teachers novice teachers like myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what I've found, um, and I found this here, I don't really know about teaching contexts out, outside of Quebec, but I found this here, is you're, you're in school, right? You're in school and you, you're, you're being prompted to question, you know, you're, you, you, you may be surrounded mm-hmm. by teachers who practice critical pedagogy. And then you go into the teaching system here and mm-hmm. you you can be met by administration or perhaps other teachers who really are, are entrenched in their they ways. They like perhaps, answers. And, yes. And who, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm trying to like <laughs> phrase this carefully, but, like but yeah, answers. teachers who, who, who will just kind of put you down in a way for mm-hmm. not, for, for being okay with this vulnerability, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So what what do you like? Do you have words of advice for the novice teacher who yeah. is who is perhaps is listening to you question. and is like, oh my god, I'm so inspired, I'm so fired up, I want to take this into my classroom when I graduate and become a teacher. Um, you know, what what would you say to that student then who could come up against resistance? I would say that you have to accept that thinking, I mean, real thinking that challenges your comfort and other people's comfort zones, your comfort zone and other people's comfort zones, you have to accept that this type of thinking is both a risk and an extremely challenging thing to do. There are not any immediate rewards for it. In fact, there are more risks and emotions riling up than rewards, right? But slowly, slowly, you will see that it being, you know, that, you know, being a critical pedagogue is a whole different ballgame than being a regular pedagogue or teacher. And I know that we really, you know, talked about the abstract stuff, you know, wherever that we talked. I didn't get into the details, but you can learn more in classes on educational theory. But you have to be, you have to accept that dissecting knowledge is a risky thing to do. And, mm-hmm. but you, you will also know that little by little, you're go, you are contributing to changing the world in a very silent and difficult way. So this would be your reward. The rewards are not immediate, right? Mm -hmm. But then after seven, eight weeks, you're in the class and your students are so different from other students that this in and of itself is a reward. You're like, jeez, look at them. Look at the way they're questioning. Look at the way they're reading a text. Look at how comfortable they are with this. But again, I can't stress this enough. There are no immediate rewards. The rewards are long-term and it's for the sake of Again, being like being a you, you are you. You have to look at yourself as a hopeful pessimist mm-hmm. for making a better society, right? right? And if you're Tesla teachers, gosh, it's important to be a critical pedagogue, if especially yeah. you're teaching overseas, right? That's yes. something to 
cover later on for you guys. Yes. And we're, we're going to talk all about that in part two, <laughs> of course, of this, of this series. Yeah. Um, okay. Just as a final question, mm-hmm. I, I mean, oh my God, I, <laughs> this has just been so, so enlightening and I really hope for the listener as well, that there's just so much to, to take from this and to put into practice and experiment with. So, so for the teacher who's listening and just wants to learn more, what are, what are some mm-hmm. resources they can turn to um, if they want to deepen their, their exploration of, of critical theory? So critical let, let me answer this with a caveat in saying that mm-hmm. getting, getting a straight answer from someone who's, who's doing philosophy of education is very difficult because I always have like long answers. So let me, let me give this final long answer as well. By saying that, oh, this is a difficult question. Also, keep in mind, I'm not an expert in critical theory. And most of the texts that I know of are written in an obscure way. And, you know, I would only say that don't get discouraged if you want to read a text that looks really daunting and sometimes pretentious and filled with jargon, because, yes, people do write that way. Remember about the banking model of, uh, you know, um, teachers in critical pedagogy. Same thing goes into writing as well. But... Um, don't don't get discouraged when you see these texts. Find a text that is easier. Find another introduction that is more accessible. And also what I do is see if the questions that I asked earlier are answered through the text, right? Say, will the text help me become a hopeful pessimist? Will it help me poke my knowing enough so that I could harm people less? And if it is going towards that trajectory, you're you're dealing with a good text. But if it's sort of like it keeps stopping you, then you're like, all right, I don't think I can communicate with this it's fine it's not you it's many of many times it's the writer and many times it's the approach to critical Mm -hmm. theory so try to create your own knowledge of critical theory by taking three or four introduction introductory texts and say this is what answer this is what you know helps me with the question that Nassim said this is Mm going to make me poke my knowledge enough so go in that way this is an answer that I can give you I don't want to give you any texts the name of text no okay Okay, I was going to ask that, but no, <laughs> there's no particular. Um, it's very difficult. Or... Like I have to be honest with you to the yeah. to the to the point of like um, maybe you know maybe maybe a lot of my colleagues will excommunicate me, but um, the thing is, I I, I find critical theory texts very um, of, often unapproachable, mm-hmm. um, especially when they're written by people in education because. Um, they use a lot of jargons and jargons can be very alienating. So what I usually give, I say, I I usually have like, um, and I'll, and and I'll give this to you later on. You can put it as a reference on your website, like go for the glossaries, just like the lexicon for critical theory. Mm. Find like, what is hegemony? What is that? What is this? What is that? And then you sort of like start shaping your own way. Like it's your tools to dominate what critical theory is about right so it's not always bad to knowing is good right so my suggestion is start with a text that make you comfortable don't get disappointed if you see a text is daunting that's the one number one thing know your concern know that you want to be wide awake about the injustices in the world know that you want to have your knowledge poked and then the right text will sort of reveal itself right Okay. That's such such an such a long answer to like I could have given you the name of a book, huh? <laughs> no, but 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 this is honest. You know, like this is honest and this is this is this is what you feel. And 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 I I I get that. I get that also because sometimes I think of 
honestly, like where where I find I, I learn so much usually comes from fiction or comes from places where I don't even expect mm-hmm. it at times. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's hard to really be like, yes, this is the book. <laughs> you know, if you exactly. read this book, you, yeah. you know, and, and we're, we're that's that's not what we're about. Anyways. And I and I hope yeah. I'm sure you have you have other guests who are um, experts in this. But take take this as a, you know, a best. I don't know when you say the word philosopher it's very it sounds very presumptuous but take it as uh, like the answer of someone who's doing philosophy or philosophy of education it's kind of like um pick your own book and have these questions in mind I, I I'm saying this because I've had a lot of hard time trying to find an appropriate book and I haven't so I sort of mold my own version of critical theory in the class and I say, this is my version. Let's look at the world this way. These are some texts that are just going to help us. But, you know, don't be discouraged when you read them. Especially for like first year students reading critical theory, hegemony counters like, what is going on here, right? So um, don't be discouraged. I think those are great words to end on. I mean, you know, just in, in general, you know, don't, don't be discouraged. And yeah, mm-hmm. and to, and to, learn to be okay with this vulnerability. Yeah, that really stuck with me. That's, yeah, what we spoke about mm-hmm. at the beginning. Um, yeah, my God. The world needs people who are who are okay with their vulnerability and embrace it and make better. You know, I, I and I always say this, and we're going to end on this, I always say, you know, um, terrorists or white supremacists who kill people, um, they don't have any doubt in their minds. It's all certainty, unfortunately, right? Yeah. So it's it's okay to have doubts and questions because I I always say that leads to fewer bullets on the streets. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're very much related. So mm-hmm. <laughs> be okay with the vulnerability of not knowing and, and constantly carry that discomfort with you. Yeah, and, and hey, it's what precious. you're saying right now, I mean, it, it really goes to show, and you, you said it before, but just how, you know, the, the work that, we can do as teachers is so far reaching. Like it's Absolutely. just, it's so, Absolutely. it's so far reaching. It, it's scary to think about it, right? <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> it is. Nassim, thank you so much for joining me today. In our next episode, we'll discuss being a critical pedagogue while teaching Tesla abroad. Many teachers set their sights on teaching abroad in developing countries where ESL teachers are in huge demand. Teaching in a developing country can seem like an adventure for the teacher, but what is it like for the students? I'll be joined by Nina Lee, who is a master's student in Concordia's Applied Linguistics program. Nina is Vietnamese and learned English at an Australian school in Saigon. We'll be discussing what it was like to be taught by entirely foreigner teachers and how that influenced her associations with the English language. Really first time I came here, I was on an eight-month visa. I wasn't thinking of, you know, like of living here forever. I was testing out the water, but mm-hmm. no one ex- no one would call me an expat, you know. The moment I stepped into Canada, I've heard people asking me, so are you going to learn French? You know, like things like that. And this is how French people do things around here. And I was just thinking that, whoa, I'm just living here for eight months. But no, I do try to learn French. And I I don't expect people to accommodate me when I come into another country, even though I was thinking to live here for only eight months. But that was not the same thing for 
Western teachers that I knew before. The Talking Tesla podcast is a feature of Concordia's Tesla Resource Center. For more information about our community and our resources, visit our website at www.concordia.ca forward slash Tesla or find us on Facebook under Concordia's Tesla Resource Center.